0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers, to Gilded Age murder, to gangsters, to fires, to pirates, to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app, cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. In the second half of the 19th century, in a lawless stretch of land in present-day Oklahoma known as Indian Territory, the name Bass Reeves struck terror into the heart of any criminal who was on the run. A deputy U.S. Marshal with a quick trigger and a reputation for both doggedness and creativity in chasing down outlaws, Reeves, was perhaps the greatest lawman of the Wild West. But Reeves, unlike most lawmen of his day, was black. Born a slave in 1838, Reeves led an astonishing life that reads like a breathless account of the thrill and danger of living in the Old West. During his 32 years as a lawman, Reeves helped round up thousands of criminals. He killed about 15 of them, but was never shot himself, and always managed to come up with inventive ways to escape sticky situations. Although one historian has argued that Reeves was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger, the details of his story have largely faded into obscurity as popular culture churned out movies and TV shows about white cowboys and sheriffs. The curled yellow pages of newsprint detailing Reeves's exciting exploits lay forgotten in Oklahoma. But in recent years, Reeves' story has received a long-belated second look. A comprehensive biography written in 2006 brought many facts of his life back to light for the first time in more than a century. Reeves was since featured in the 2019 HBO series Watchmen. And that same year, the film Hell on the Border brought Reeves' life to the silver screen. This is the underappreciated story of Bass Reeves whom one U.S. deputy called, one of the bravest men this country has ever known. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher, All That's Interesting, where we explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past. I'm All this Interesting staff writer, Kalina Fraga. Today, we're going back to the lawless days of the Wild West, to explore the life of U.S. Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves, please stick around at the end of the episode for our very special guest, Mr. Art Burton, whose book, Black Gun, Silver Star, The Life and Legend of Frontier Marshal Bass Reeves, played a crucial role in bringing Bass Reeves' story back to light.
1: Live special recording, The Lone Ranger!
0: Before Bass Reeves upheld the law on behalf of the U.S. government, its laws held him down. Reeves was born a slave in July 1838 in Crawford County, Arkansas. When the Civil War broke out in 1860, Reeves was forced to accompany his master, George Reeves, into battle, but doing so would prove serendipitous. One day, as George and Bass argued over a card game, they came to blows, and Reeves knocked George out cold. Knowing that a slave could face death for such a thing, Reeves immediately fled into a whole new life. Ironically, for someone who would later make a name for himself as a dedicated lawman, Reeves headed to a place where people rarely followed any rules at all—Indian Territory. This stretch of 75,000 square miles in present-day Oklahoma became a bastion for lawlessness during the Civil War. Why? Indian Territory was not officially a territory at all. Numerous Native American tribes had been forced to relocate there after President Andrew Jackson's 1830 Indian Removal Act. But because Congress never officially recognized it as a territory, outlaws took advantage of gray areas in its jurisdiction. Tribal law only extended to tribal members. The federal government was supposed to take care of the rest. It's unclear exactly what Reeves did in Indian Territory during the Civil War. He may have switched sides and fought for the Union army. During the conflict, indigenous people fought for both North and South. But Reeves did make use of his time there. He learned about the lay of the land, which would later prove crucial once he became a deputy in charge of patrolling that very territory. Reeves also honed his skill with a gun. Although he claimed he was only fair with a rifle, he was so good that he got barred from competitive turkey shoots. And significantly, Reeves also got to know the Creek and Seminole people living in the territory, even learning their languages and customs, another development that would ultimately prove fortuitous. When the Civil War ended and slaves were freed with the passage of the 13th Amendment, Reeves left Indian territory. He married and built a home for himself, his wife, and their growing family. Reeves would eventually have 11 children in Van Buren, Arkansas, but Reeves' ties to Indian territory remained deep. According to several accounts, Reeves worked during this time as a scout and a guide. When federal lawmen came looking for outlaws hiding in Indian territory, Reeves helped them navigate its dangers. Then Judge Isaac C. Parker showed up. Parker was called a hanging judge for his strict adherence to the law and frequent use of the death penalty. And when the hanging judge took one look at Indian territory, he decided to bring order to this lawless land. Determined to bring the moral force of a strong federal court to Fort Smith, which had federal jurisdiction over the territory, Parker ordered the immediate hire of 200 deputies. Because of Bass Reeves's knowledge of the territory, his ability to speak indigenous languages, and his reputation with a gun, his name was high on the list. Reeves became a deputy U.S. Marshal in 1875. Bring him in alive, Judge Parker ordered his new deputies, or dead. Bass Reeves quickly got to work, laying down the law. It didn't take long for Bass Reeves to build a reputation as a fearless and effective U.S. deputy. Reeves would round up dozens of outlaws at a time, 12, 15, 16, while most deputy marshals brought in four or five at a time, said Art T. Burton, who wrote a 2006 biography of Reeves called Black Gun, Silver Star. As he set out to capture outlaws, Reeves relied on creative methods. After all, he needed to be even more wily than the fugitives. Sometimes he disguised himself as a farmer, a cowboy, or a preacher. Once, while pretending to be a farmer, he purposefully crashed his wagon into a tree stump so that some outlaws hiding in a log cabin nearby would emerge to help. They did, and Reeves arrested them. He was quick on his feet, too. Another time, while in pursuit of outlaws, Reeves was cornered by the Brunters, a trio of brothers on the land for horse theft, robbery, and murder. Facing down their guns, Reeves coolly asked them to tell him the date so he could list it on the warrant. The brunters, perhaps mistaking Reeves for a simpleton, started to laugh, and Reeves took the opportunity to whip out his Colt revolver and kill the three brothers in the blink of an eye. In yet another incident, Reeves was chasing after two Texas murderers when they cornered him and asked him if he had any last words. Reeves asked them to read a letter that his wife had written him. The outlaws fatally agreed. Reeves pulled a letter out of his pocket. His hands shook so much that one of the outlaws grabbed his arm to steady him. Having distracted the criminals, Reeves quickly drew his pistol and fired. Soon enough, Reeves' ability to escape unscathed from encounters with outlaws earned him the moniker the Invincible Marshal." Reeves was also famous for catching outlaws who had long eluded capture. When he arrested a seminal man named Greenleaf, the Arkansas Daily Gazette noted that Greenleaf, a murderer, had avoided arrest for 18 years. The paper also noted that, in addition to Greenleaf, Reeves brought in 19 other prisoners. It didn't matter that Reeves couldn't read or write. As a slave, he'd been forbidden from learning. So when it came to serving warrants, Reeves would simply commit the warrant to memory. Then, he would flawlessly serve it to the outlaws as he arrested them. And as Reeves successfully arrested more and more outlaws, his reputation in Indian territory grew. After Reeves shot and killed a fleeing outlaw from a quarter mile away, the Muscogee Indian Journal called Reeves one of the best deputy U.S. Marshals in Indian territory. Bass Reeves is the most successful marshal that rides in the Indian country, agreed the Daily Arkansas Gazette in 1891, he is a holy terror to the lawless characters in the West. It is probable that in the past few years he has taken more prisoners from the Indian Territory than any other officer. And the Oklahoma City Weekly Times Journal raved, Reeves was never known to show the slightest excitement under any circumstance. He does not know what fear is. But not everyone was happy about Reeves's reputation as a lawman. According to the Reeves family history, One of Bass Reeves' family members asked him at one point why he endangered his life enforcing the white man's law. Reeves responded, maybe the law ain't perfect, but it's the only one we got, and without it, we got nothing. Bass Reeves' life wasn't nonstop glory, however. The law brought him honor and distinction, but it would also bring him great shame and heartache. Bass Reeves made a career from hunting down outlaws, he had to deal with the law himself on a couple of different occasions. First, in 1884, Reeves was accused of murdering his black cook, William Leach. In fact, Reeves had killed the man. In some versions of this story, Reeves and Leach had had an intense argument, possibly about the mistreatment of a dog, who belonged to either Reeves or Leach. In other versions of the story, witnesses state that Reeves was merely cleaning his gun when it went off, and a bullet hit Leach in the neck. A witness who spoke in Reeves' defense claimed that Reeves had not meant to kill Leach. I heard Leach tell the doctor that he did not think Bass shot him on purpose, the witness insisted. Leach's death, Burton points out, was the kind of thing that might normally get swept under the rug in the Wild West, but Reeves was not a normal U.S. deputy. As park ranger Tom Wing of the Fort Smith National Historic Site speculated, a white deputy might be charged with manslaughter for something similar, but not murder. And Burton notes in his book that it's possible Reeves faced a more serious charge because of the new U.S. Marshal, a former Confederate named John Carroll. However, Carroll's role in Reeves's trial was never proven. Reeves was acquitted and went straight back to hunting outlaws and desperados. But Reeves's trouble hadn't ended yet. The trial had depleted his savings, and he was forced to move his family out of town into a house on the outskirts of Fort Smith. And in 1902, Reeves had to face the demands of the law yet again. This time, however, justice had its blind eye trained on Reeves's son, Benny. Benny had killed his wife in a jealous rage, Although shaken, Reeves opted to serve a warrant for his son's arrest himself. Now Benny, Reeves said, you are no more my son, you have committed a crime. And I have a warrant in my pocket for you, to bring you in dead or alive. I'm going to take you in today, one way or another. Benny surrendered to his father, who promptly arrested him. Although he was sentenced to life in prison, Benny would serve just 11 years. Meanwhile, Reeves' days as a U.S. deputy were coming to an end, but this consummate lawman wasn't done serving the law just yet. Bass Reeves kept catching criminals right until the end of his career as a U.S. deputy marshal. In March 1907, at the age of 68, he engaged in his last shootout with a couple of Black anarchists. Shortly before that, Reeves got another round of positive press from the Oklahoma City Weekly Times-Journal, which ran a story about him earlier that month titled, He Has Killed 14 Men, A Fearless Negro Deputy of the Indian Territory. The story even ran in the Washington Post. Reeves, the story said, had been a potent element in bringing two territories out of the reign of the outlaw, the horse thief and the bootlegger, to Great Commonwealth, but Reeves's days as a deputy were coming to an end. In November 1907, Indian Territory became part of the new state of Oklahoma. The federal office was downsized and many of the deputies, including Bass Reeves, were let go. Reeves wasn't ready to hang up his gun just yet, however. He spent his final days as the only black patrolman with the Muscogee Police Department, and there was never any crime on his beat. Two years later, he died of Bright's disease, an archaic term for kidney disease, leaving behind an unparalleled legacy. In his 32-year career as a deputy, Bass Reeves brought in some 3,000 outlaws. He killed about 15 of them, but stated that he never shot a man when it was not necessary for him to do so in the discharge of his duty to save his own life. His glowing obituary described him as absolutely fearless and knowing no master but duty. By all accounts, Bass Reeves was highly respected during his life, and, significantly, many of the men he arrested were sent to the House of Corrections in Detroit, the same city where the Lone Ranger was first introduced via radio in 1933. So how did America forget him? The answer is complicated. Author R.T. Burton, a descendant of black cowboys himself, suggests that Bass Reeves's story was part of a greater erasure of black history that happened in the 20th century during the Jim Crow era. You didn't see black cowboys in movies and television, Burton said. At first, I just thought my relatives were strange. When Indian territory became part of Oklahoma in 1907, it officially joined the United States and adopted the Jim Crow laws prevalent in other parts of the country. all its problems, Indian territory had provided an easy atmosphere for Black, White, and Native people to mix. But in the early 20th century, that changed, and Oklahoma became a breeding ground for some horrific racism, including the 1921 Tulsa Massacre, a violent attack that wiped out the prosperous Black Greenwood district in Oklahoma. Burton believes that in the ensuing years, Black history—moments both proud and painful—were minimized and pushed aside, Stories like Bass Reeves's were slowly forgotten, even as the Lone Ranger popped up in Detroit and embraced many of his attributes. Burton argued that Bass Reeves is the closest real person to resemble the fictional Lone Ranger on the American Western frontier of the 19th century. So let's hear from Mr. Burton himself about the life of Bass Reeves. Stick around for our interview with Art Burton, a historian who writes about African-American life in the Wild West. Well, first of all, thank you for, for coming on this show. It's really exciting to talk to you about Bass Reeves. So welcome to the show, uh, Mr. Burton. Thank you. So I, I have to say, you know, putting together this podcast, your your book and your interviews about Bass Reeves and your writing on him was incredibly helpful. So so thank you for that. It was fantastic. And sorry if I sound snuffly, I have a little bit of a cold. All right, so let's dive into it. One thing that struck me about this whole story is that it, for so long, it sort of was forgotten. So how did you discover the story of
1: Bass Reeves? Uh, Originally, I was uh, at a family reunion around 1985 in Oklahoma. And one of my cousin's former college roommates stated that they had lived in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and lived in a section of Muskogee called Reeves' Addition. And they were under the impression that it was named for Bass Reeves, who everyone knew had been a lawman in Muskogee. a black lawman. And uh, I started doing some research after I got back home from Oklahoma and found out that it was named for a white banker named Ira Reeves. Hmm. And I was still curious about Bass, so I started to see what I could find out about it. And that was the beginning of my journey.
0: Wow. It's a really incredible story. He had an, an incredible life. Why do you think his story in particular is, is important for people to know, especially today?
1: Well, uh, Darius Reeves had a long career in law enforcement, uh, 32 years. It, it was sad that much of what he did was kind of uh, forgotten about, and he became a forgotten lawman. Mm. But during the period he worked from 1875 up to Oklahoma Statehood in 1907, I would think he was the most important lawman in that particular territory. He worked in Indian Territory, in Oklahoma Territory. And if you look at his record, it would be hard-pressed to find any law enforcement officer. That even came close to what he did on the Western Frontier. That would include anybody you could think of, from Ladder to, uh, you know, just, just any lawman, uh, Wildby Hickok, anybody on the Western Frontier. Yeah, And he arrested arrested, uh, thousands of people. In 1902, he was interviewed by a newspaper in the territory, and he stated he arrested over 3,000 people, and that was still about five years from his retirement as a deputy, U.S. Marshal. So he arrested a lot of felons, uh, male and female, who broke federal law in the Indian and Oklahoma Territory.
0: Yeah, it was amazing all the newspaper accounts about him. People just were raving about what an incredible lawman he was, um, newspapers from right. Indian territory in, in Arkansas. Um, did you discover anything surprising with writing your book, Black Gun Silver Star? Anything that surprised you about Bass Reeves or the history of that era in general?
1: Well, it was quite a bit. Um number one, when I went to Oklahoma as a kid visiting my grandparents and my relatives, Oklahoma had Jim Crow laws. And mm-hmm. Jim Crow laws were laws that hampered uh, African Americans in terms of what they could not could not do. And when I started reading about Bass Reeves on the, you know, pre-statehood in Oklahoma, where he arrested people if they were black, white, or Indian, irregardless of their, you know, color, that was kind of illuminating for me because I didn't realize that, you know, in that particular area of the country at that time, post-Reconstruction, they had black federal lawmen who were arresting people irregardless of their color. Bass wasn't the only African-American. There were up to 50 African-Americans who were also deputy U.S. marshals between 75 and Oklahoma Statehood and uh, 1907. But Bass worked the longest of anybody I found, black or white or Indian, who was a lawman in the territory. Mm. Also, he was six feet two, about uh two hundred pounds, they say he could whip any two men with his bare hands. Mm-hmm. And he was uh ambidextrous with pistol and rifle. And uh if you got in a gunfight with bass three, this was almost tantamount to committing suicide. Uh, <laughs> it was something you didn't want to do. But he 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 always uh, talked about and he was more proud of his detective skills than anything. And uh he worked in the disguise quite a bit to catch felons throughout his career, I did find that it was very interesting that uh, much of what he did was was pretty much similar to the fixed on Long Ranger character of mm-hmm. radio fame and, and television, which on radio, the Long Ranger started in 1933 and uh, in Detroit, Michigan. And many of the felons that Bass arrested in the Indian Territory were carried to the Detroit House of Corrections in Detroit, Michigan, where the radio program started. But, you know, he, he had an Indian fad kick many times because it's Indian territory. The Deputies marshals, had to have at least one posseman with them whenever they went into the field. He handed out silver dollars. The Long Ranger handed out silver bullets. Uh, he worked in the skies like the Long Ranger. People didn't remember his name. He rode a, a white horse at one time during his career. So it was just great. that was just very interesting. But Bass was much bigger than the Long Rangers. He was the greatest frontier hero in American history.
0: One thing I found really interesting was that you know in Indian Territory, all these people mixed—black and white and Native people—all sort of were able to mingle freely. And then right. Jim Crow came in and changed all that. And um, and you mentioned you know how how Jim Crow impacted people living in in that area. But I wonder if you could speak about, you know, the greater like erasure of Black history, whether it's uh, Bass Reeves or the the Tulsa Massacre. Um, If you could just get into that a little bit.
1: Yeah. um, Basically, uh, prior to Oklahoma statehood, it was very fluid. Toward statehood, there were some schools that were made uh, for Black kids because mm-hmm. uh, there was a large influx of whites coming into the territory. And then as soon as Oklahoma became a state in 1907, the two first bills that were enacted were Jim Crow bills. I think they segregated the telephone booth. And, uh, I think the, um, uh, it was another bill that they, we use, I think it may have been they uh, segregated the rail cars, uh, passenger cars, but, uh, it, it got pretty bad after statehood and, uh, It undoubtedly did play a role in terms of what happened in Tulsa in 1921 when they had the Tulsa Race Massacre. There was a lot of African-Americans who were fairly well off uh, financially. And I think all the cabs and buses in Tulsa were owned by African-Americans. And the African-Americans lived in a segregated community, to Jim Crow, and it was very prosperous. And a lot of the whites, I believe, had come into Tulsa looking for work. But they were very um, jealous of the status that African-Americans had developed. And that pretty much uh, caused the the, the uh, massacre which take place. And also the Ku Klux Klan mm. had uh, been energized after the 1915 movie Birth of a Nation. And the Klan was very strong in Oklahoma in the early 1920s. Uh, But it's it's very interesting that lynching uh, basically occurred in Oklahoma after a statehood 1907 racial lynching. That is prior to uh, statehood, most lynching in Oklahoma was done for cattle and horse thieves. But after statehood, they did have racial lynchings. But racial lynchings ended in Oklahoma uh, primarily around 1932. So you didn't see the violence against African-Americans on the same level as you would have found in Texas in Arkansas and other Southern states at that time. Hmm. But uh, Jim Crow was pretty bad. I mean, you know, it's, uh, the, the Indians were given honorary white status because of the oil in Oklahoma and African-Americans were relegated to a secondary class status and they couldn't vote. They were not allowed to vote. They were, they had what was called the grandfather clause and that was used and they used other clauses to keep African Americans from voting. Mm. So it was was bad. Not, you know, that was all across the South uh, in the States. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that just that someone like him would be sort of famous in his day and, you know, be reported about in the newspapers. And then a hundred years later, um, largely forgotten, except, you know, for historians like you and then
1: one of the most surprising things to me was that nobody knows where he's buried. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, that's how much they forgot about him.
0: Wow. They did
1: not retain the information where he was buried. And actually, uh, in 1985, when I started to research, I uh, called up the uh, Muskogee Historical Society in Oklahoma. And the lady I spoke to was very nice, but she told me that they did not keep black people's history. Mm, wow. And I thought that was very strange because it's just it's not just black people's history, it's everybody's history.
0: Yeah, right. It's
1: basically, the only information that they were retaining and espousing was that of uh, white Americans mm. at that time.
0: That's so sad, these things that have been just lost to, to history.
1: Right, right. Well, I think things are going to get much better going in the future, but it's going to take <laughs> a lot of research. I think a lot of young people are, are definitely going to have to get involved with researching the true American history. because mm-hmm. uh, There's a lot of history, not only what the minorities have done, but also what women have done that has been kind of pushed under the rug. And so actually, when I was doing my research, I found a white female who was a deputy U.S. Marshal in the Indian Territory.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> and,
1: yeah. And, you know, that type of thing has never been seen before in a mm-hmm. movie or a television program.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Do you have any favorite Bass Reef stories that you came across during your research?
1: Uh, it's quite a few. Um, <laughs> well, the first story the first story I received that really uh, Galvin asked me in doing research on Bass Reefs where an uh, old gentleman told me he was 98 years old and he was part Cherokee Indian. His name was Reverend Haskell shoe Boot, And he told me a story where he was driving a wagon for the lead lawman in Muskogee, around 1904, 1905, and they was after an outlaw at Gibson Station, which was 12 miles north of Muskogee, and he said they had a large posse, and the posse was not making any inroads, and I guess the man must have done pretty bad because they were trying to kill him, mm-hmm. and they they had used up quite a bit of ammunition, uh, and Bud Ledbetter, who was in charge of the posse, told somebody to go back to Muskogee and get the hatcheries. And he stated that Bass came on the scene as the sun was starting to go down. I see a quick shooting at the outlaw. And he said uh, once Bass arrived uh, and seeing what was going on, the, the outlaw jumped up. And I was under impression watching all these Western movies, Hollywood movies, he's going to jump up and get on his horse. And he stated that the outlaw started running across a field. And he said that the... Uh, Posse started shooting at him, and they were missing. And he said, but let Brother Holler at the top of his voice, get him, Bass!'" And he said, Bass he said, "Coolly and calmly, I will break his neck. And he said, "Bass took his Winchester rifle with one shot, broke this outlaw's neck at a quarter of a mile.
0: Wow. That
1: would be an of incredible a mile. Western. Yeah, I, and initially I thought the man was lying to me. And, mm-hmm. and when I started getting into the research, I found where he killed outlaws at a quarter of a mile mm-hmm. in gunfight with his Winchester rifle.
0: Have you watched um, any of the more recent content about him? I know he was featured in, in HBO's The Watchman. Did you watch that?
1: Yeah, I, I, was, I was happy to see him featured in The Watchman. I would have loved if they had done a little bit more mm-hmm. on him. I mean, it was just like a hello type of thing, you know. It was very brief, but I thought it was kind of neat. They, they they had more of a, a focus on the Tulsa race mm-hmm. massacre. But, yeah, I, I was glad they, they mentioned Bass and that. They, there has been one or two terrible movies made about Bass, low budget, <laughs> which I wasn't too happy about. And there's, he's been featured in a few documentaries, but I know there's people working on um other programming oh, on Bass Reads going forward, and I hope they be much better.
0: Oh, good. Yeah, his story definitely deserves, I think, a, a yeah. look. Yeah.
1: I, uh, the magazines, uh, True West magazine in their February issue had a focus on Bass, which I helped write some articles for, and that was the largest expose of him in a magazine. Mm-hmm. The cover of the magazine had him dressed as the Lone Ranger, which I thought was humorous, but, <laughs> and they uh, Texas Monthly Magazine, for their July issue, which will be out soon this month, they're doing a large feature on Bass Reefs.
0: Wow. That's great. So he's getting more and more exposure moving forward. Yeah, I
1: actually, actually I should tell you too that in, in Paris, France, they're developing a, a video game on Bass Reefs.
0: Oh yeah? In France?
1: Uh, right, right now. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and he's featured in a comic book in Paris, France. Also, that's very popular, the most popular comic book in in Paris. Uh, Bass was given uh, a feature <laughs> in it wow. with, the, with the with the the popular cartoon character. Then the cartoon character, I don't remember his name, but he's a cowboy, <laughs> and so he he partners up with Bass in this comic book. Wow! But you can Google that and find that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Just to wrap things up now, is is there anything else you want to say about Bass Reeves or any last any last words about him or his legacy, his story?
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm just happy that his uh the history of him is finally getting out and that people are finding out what his accomplishments with, were and how long he worked as a lawman in the Wild West. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh he's he's a he's a American hero that everyone can celebrate and uh, be proud of he overcame you know many of the adversities he had to deal with and you know he walked in the valley of death every day for 32 years and came out on top mm-hmm. and helped people regardless of their race their color their religion or whatever and uh, was a great guy
0: Was The Lone Ranger based on Bass Reeves? We may never know for sure, but what is certain is that Reeves's story is remarkable enough on its own. His is a tale of adventure, bravery, and dedication to the law, a tale worthy of a prominent place in the chronicles of not only the Wild West, but of American history at large.
1: Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthisinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.